a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we continue our ongoing faculty spotlight, what we call office hours with recorded conversation featuring finance faculty member Mark Lipson. Prior to the close of the 2021 year, Mark joined us for an office hours conversation. We talked with him about his story, what led him to Darden, what he enjoys about teaching Darden students, the power of the case method, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Professor Mark Lipson. Mark, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, talk with you and really to address my comments to prospective students. I think uh, Brett knows enough about the faculty to know that we care deeply about the whole of the Darden experience. And that experience rests more than anything on the type of students we bring in. So um, it's really is my pleasure to be a part of this. Well, Mark, thank you, thank you again. And we like to start these conversations with really the same first question. Tell us your story. Who are you and what is your background? Yeah, you know, for those who, who got here a moment ago, I, I have uh, a, a lot of difference uh, in my early life living in Denmark and then uh, moving to the States, but pretty much a, a Northeasterner deeply. But I fell in love with uh, the University of Virginia on a visit. And it became my number one choice for college. So uh, interestingly enough, this Northeasterner went to Virginia for his undergraduate in anthropology, eventually. And uh, from that moved on, got a master's in accounting and then slowly shifted my way into finance uh, after working briefly as an auditor. And then into academia where my my heart and soul still rests in the education process broadly. Um, And as as Brett said, I teach finance um, at Darden but I also teach in innovation. Um, So I've had a chance to teach a variety of things and um, always the passion is, is for the students and the kind of experience they create. So that background, you know, is, is maybe not entirely typical, um, having gone from really the soft side, the uh, poet side. In fact, I always say I'm a poet, meaning that uh, in the world of business education, and there's a magazine called, as many of you know, Poets and Quants, uh, the reigning joke is that there are poets and quants. And so I'm a poet who found his way into the quant side. Well, let's stay with that, because I imagine for some of our attendees here today, um, hearing your background, anthropology to finance, wondering a bit about that transition as they may be thinking about their own personal background and coming to business school. So how do you go from anthropology to finance? That's a, that's a great question. I think that one of the most important things you pick up from the Darden education is a recognition that all things in business are focused on decisions made by people based on their experience, their values, their goals, their training. And so anthropology, for me, is the study of people. You know, what motivates us? What makes us inspired? I still, interestingly enough, keep up with the literature and read in that area, particularly now neuroscience. Um, But the idea is that Darden believes that that it's all about decisions and therefore it's all about people. And what you learn um, quickly is that numbers aren't their own separate reality. You don't move from being a poet to being a quant. You know, you don't live a quant world or live a poet world. What you do, you live the world of people. And what you learn to do in a rigorous MBA program is to sort of translate the experience of people into 
proximate drivers of behavior in organizations whose outcomes then are investments, products, and then ultimately some kind of financial economic performance. So whether you're thinking in terms of operations, where I try to quantify the behavior of people who might come and buy a product and I determine how much inventory I hold, or you think about the behavior of investors and why they might invest in a firm, or you think about how to design a marketing plan to achieve particular quantified goals, the real point of business education is to link human beings to measures and uh, frameworks that allow us to make very good decisions. So interestingly enough, I felt it surprisingly natural to make that transition, being someone who cared about sort of rigorous thinking, um, but had a passion for human beings. That's such an interesting point, because one of the things that we oftentimes talk about as an admissions committee is that the root of the learning experience at Darden is actually in communication, uh, being able to express your perspective, why you think a certain way, why you think we should pursue a particular decision, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In fact, what we know about communication is it's much more effective if you tell a story, if there's some kind of a narrative, a meaningful narrative. Now, some people may interpret that as, well, then you got to make up a story for the numbers or with the decision, but that isn't it. The, the story is the numbers. Like if you really get to the heart of it, the numbers are telling you some story about, about what people do. And what you want to do is to surface that narrative in a way that's very compelling, that's rich and real, and that's the storytelling part, and defensible. And that's the economic side of it, which, you know, for me in finance, we, we are the uh, disciplinarians of people's thinking about decision-making. Um, not only us, but, but uh, it's really a big part of what finance is, is that discipline imposed by certain frameworks on how we make decisions. So Mark, I, I think of you as someone who has a lot of interests, a lot of passions. You mentioned initially finding your way into accounting and then you've pursued a PhD in finance and now part of a finance faculty here at the Darden School. Um, what about finance really resonated with you? Um, what, what led you to say, this is what I wanna do with my, my life and career? That's a, that's a great question. I, I do think um, it follows nicely from, from the earlier part of this conversation that um, it's one thing to say, I think this is a good idea and tell a story. I think that what we have to understand is that you, all of you who are thinking of coming to Darden will spend your life competing for resources, competing for attention. You help be in a world um, where you wanna get things done. And the ability to put rigor to it, to say not just that this idea is good, but this idea is better than the next idea. Now that's really important because everybody makes decisions in a world of limited resources. And so how do you justify? It's gotta be more than the story. And what I really found so fascinating about finance was this ability to say, look, here is a legitimate defensible framework that allows us to put some kind of economic measure on our decisions. Now I, I emphasize strongly in the classroom that the economic analysis is an input to your judgment, but is not a replacement for your judgment. So I just wanna make sure that it's not all about the numbers, but the numbers have to be a part of it. And so, uh, you know, I often think about it and I often get asked why I think Darden is such a special place. And I think to understand that completely, 
you have to think about what our ultimate objective is, which is to create leaders. And so we have to have a position on what leaders are. And the position we take is that modern leadership is not about power and authority and knowledge. Uh, modern leadership is about influence and teamwork and inspiration. And so to be a great leader now, you have to be able to influence others, to bring them along, to work with them, to recognize that knowledge is spread out in an organization, not all available to one person. So you have to work in teams. So what, what is the Darden experience, if not um, an opportunity for you to get that practice and influence? Now, I'm, I'm mentioning this because it's really important. You don't come to Darden to become a typical MBA from the sense of we know who you are and what you should be. You come to Darden to become the very best possible leader, given your values, what you want to achieve and where you want to go. So when I think about what's so fascinating about finance is I'm handing you a set of tools that is mastery of those tools will allow you to be compelling and a really dramatic influencer wherever you are in an organization. So it is a way to empower you to be who you want to be and achieve what you want to be. It's not a way of constraining you into a mold or a framework that somebody else imposes upon you. And I think that's really important because a lot of people tend to be fearful of some of the more quantitative and structured um, disciplines such as accounting and finance and uh, decision analytics. But they are just ways to empower you to be who you want to be and to achieve the things you want to achieve. So what inspires me about Darden is it's a whole framework built about empowering you. And finance is one of the, I think, um, one of the very powerful tools we give you so that you can achieve those goals. That's such an interesting way to, to look at it. I, I, I think it, its root is a lot of the things that, that we talk about when we talk about what makes Darden special, the focus on the student, the, the focus on, on the individual. I mean, aligns very well with a lot of our messaging to prospective students as they think about shaping their application process and making sure their, their narrative is coming through. Yeah, in fact, we, we often hear people uh, pitch Darden as case method. And I think that that's an important aspect of how we are different, but it's really putting the method ahead of the real goal and the real objective. Um, we use cases because it's one of the best ways to create a conversational student-centered learning environment in the classroom. So many people say cases are great because you, you're, you're being practical. You're, you're really talking about what businesses really do. And I think they miss, you're talking about what businesses really do. It's not the business doing part that's important, it's the talking part that's important. So we, we use cases because it gives you a chance to reflect on your values and insights and offer something to the, the students in the class. So student-centered learning is what we describe what we do as. Case method is the way the world talks about it. And I emphasize that because I know people at many schools who say, oh, I'll, we teach cases, you know? Oh yeah, 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 no, we get it. We're case-based too. So I love cases, you know, I get to talk about businesses. And it's like, they're not understanding the point of cases the way that we understand it. And it, you know, when it comes to true student-centered learning, there are very few schools that as a practical matter, um, put that front and center. And inevitably it has to be case-based. Otherwise, if I give you a problem set, 
right? I'm a lecture-based uh, school and I give you a problem set. You know, the engineers love that because there's a very clear answer and, and we all get there and we all agree this is the answer and everyone feels kind of empowered and wonderful and that's great, but there's no you. There's no room for your values. There's no room for your experience. There's no room for your passion. Only in, a, in an environment that is sufficiently ambiguous, that is sufficiently real, is there room for you. And so the, the, star, the, the environment at Darden and the use of cases is really just a mechanism to let you achieve the things that you want to achieve to build your skill set. And so, you know, again, you're seeing that, that consistent theme here. Why do I love Darden? Because of that. Why do I love finance? Because it's a particularly strong skill that's worth having. And um, at the end, that's why we love cases so much. So I love writing cases. I love teaching cases. I love seeing the world through cases. But the best cases are ones that give you room to be you. Well, Mark, let's talk a little bit about the classes uh, that, that you teach, and then we're going to get into your research areas. I see we're starting to get a few questions, so thank you so much for everybody who's writing in. We'll get to some of them. I can't say we'll get to all of them, but certainly some of them. Uh, one of the classes you teach here is International Corporate Finance, and it's a very popular second-year elective with our full-time MBA students. Uh, what is this course focused on, and, and what's it like to lead that course? Yeah, thanks, Brett. You know, Maybe it's that very early experience of being an international um, to some degree, but I always find that the, we, we build these skills and we think of the world and we, we think of the world through our experience of the world. Um, one thing that it's very hard for many people to experience is how the world is so very different in other environments and then other countries' environments in general. And then what are the things that we don't even think of keeping track of it when we think about our world. So, you know, right now we're talking about inflation here in the U.S., something we haven't had to talk about for a long time. But there are countries where they talk about inflation all the time, like it's, it's a, a part of their lived experience. And so I always find that the international context is so much richer and deeper than just my local context. So I think that it makes decision-making much more real and much more interesting. But to get there, to get into that world, uh, you need a, an extra set of frameworks. So when I think of finance in the core, like I, I run our core finance program at Darden and teach in the core. And my passion deeply is, is introducing people to the world of finance. Um, to, we, we build that core to give you those essential skills. The International Corporate Finance course is, is just that course one more time but I just layer in all the international stuff. So at its heart, it's very interesting. You know, people say finance and, and most people think markets maybe, you know, some people have no idea really what it is. Um, but finance is the set of tools that help you think about where to raise money, where to spend money and how you can actually manage and adjust the riskiness of the things that you do. So that's how we build the core in finance is on those three major topics. In the international corporate finance topic, we just take all those globally. So we have a section in the core on raising money, like should you have more debt or, or should you have more equity? In my international corporate finances, it's like, well, should you have debt in denominated in euros or debt denominated in dollars? Why would Harley Davidson, a case I recently wrote and taught in that class, why would Harley Davidson, this quintessential American brand, issue 
a billion dollars in euro-denominated debt for sale in the European Union. So that's one example. And on, on, uh, where, on capital allocation, the other big part of it, so where do you raise money, where do you spend it? Um, why should I insource? Why should I outsource? Very typical question. Why should I outsource globally? Adds a whole new layer of, of issues, political issues, geopolitical issues, exchange rate issues, uh, borrowing issues, transportation issues. Um, so that's the capital side. And then on the, on the sort of hedging and risk management side, you know, again, of all the things that change when you go globally is suddenly you're, you have an exchange rate issue, which doesn't seem, so, you know, I go to the, go to the market and I buy euros or I buy um, Peruvian souls and I make my payment. But if you look at the Wall Street Journal or you read the popular press or pay attention to it, exchange rates move, you know, two or 3% in a couple of days, they move 10, 15% over the course of a year, they can go 20 or 30%, which is what we're seeing in the Turkish Lira um, over a couple of months. Um, that is an astounding change in the geography of costs. So you might think, oh, I've got my supply chain. I, I buy lettuce, you know, from a lettuce farmer in California and I sell it at my little um, grocery store. What if the cost of that lettuce shifts by 30% in, in one year? I mean, these, these are tremendous changes. So the third part of it is, is all about managing risks. And that would be one of the risks, just the exchange rate side, let alone the supply chain side. So it's a course that I love to teach because it is, it is core concepts. I'm, I'm not pushing advanced uh, new techniques. It builds on the foundation we've given you, but it does open up this universe of global thinking to the students. And, and my sense, again, of, of introducing that depth and complexity to the students we have. We've got a question here about cases and case writing. And before we talk about your innovation course, courses, I wanna ask you, where did the case ideas come from? You mentioned this Harley Davidson case that you wrote, and it felt it felt to me like a good time to ask this question uh, because it sounds like an interesting case. I didn't I didn't know that they had issued that debt. Um, and where where uh, where did these ideas come from? How, how do you go go about researching them? All these kinds of things. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It is part of um, when we think about what faculty do at Darden. Um, research. We are a research institution. We're a tier one research institution. So we all do research and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about my own research. Uh, but part of what we think of our, do, our duties, research, teaching, but teaching for us is more than being excellent in the classroom. It's more than the skill of creating a student-centered learning environment. That skill of teaching also includes course development. And that means as part of that case writing. So we're always trying to refresh our materials, keep current in what's happening. So where do the case ideas come from? They start with the needs in the classroom. So again, I teach my international corporate finance class. I had a case that I used on Valet, which was um, they decided to issue um, in euros also actually, interestingly enough, but they'd usually been a dollar borrower. So why did they make that change? And it had to do with some of the changing interests of the time of the financial crisis where people were shifting, searching for yield, and were very interested in exposure to commodities. So this is a framework, a global framework that drove that decision. Now that, that was a great time uh, and a great case for a while, but now the world has changed. And now we see this uh, reverse Yankee, this discussion about US companies moving globally. So I needed in my international class an opportunity to sort of refresh that perspective. 
to get into the classroom something that's very much on the current minds of uh, both investors and uh, issuers of debt. And so what is true is sometimes I just write those cases. But often enough, uh, many faculty work with students to write cases. Now, I had a wonderful student in my first year class, uh, Robbie O'Brien, um, Canadian student, great student, passionate um, about all things. He's just an amazing guy and a great writer, actually. Um, and he, he approached me and said, I would love to write some cases. And you can do that for credit, actually, at Darton for course credit. Uh, so I said, great. Well, I need, here's two, two types of cases I need. And I put together a list of ideas and Harley was one of those ideas. So uh, Robbie wrote the first draft of that, which I then worked um, into its final case form. And so we used that case um, in my international class this year. And I would say Robbie also wrote a case that we used in the core finance course this year as well. So uh, where do case ideas come from? They start with a need in the curriculum. Uh, how do they get created? Sometimes we just write them, but, but often, and we love doing it, we, we put together cases with students. One additional question, and this has come up in, well, we'll note that it, it came up in a faculty panel during our recent diversity conference. It also has come up as part of these conversations. The speed at which business is changing, particularly in areas like finance, where you now have a lot of technology um, coming to bear, and that's been the case for a long time, but you're here starting to hear about things like blockchain and all of this. Like, how do you, how do you keep the materials current? How do you keep up with the pace of change uh, in, in the business world? This is, this is also very complicated because we struggle all the time with two things. We are not a school, as no school should be, that teaches you today's recipe. We are, like the very best schools, a school that teaches you to be a master chef. And I would say that chefs don't follow recipes. Chefs are inspired by recipes, but chefs respond to the moment. And great chefs respond to the moment creatively and compellingly. So the balance that we have to strike all the time is, is to bring in what is happening and to be current, but not let that dominate the, the curriculum, not, not let being current be the point, but to let being current be a way for us to expose you to eternal truths. I use words like that and people go, well, isn't that an overstatement to talk about eternal truths? And it's like, no. No, no, actually, I don't think it's an overstatement at all. I, I think, you know, the power of diversification in a portfolio is an eternal truth. You know, they, these are things that I think really have always and will always be front and center determinants of business decision making. So the question is, how do we always teach the truth and get you exposed to it? So you're, you're um, I think we've used the term future proofed, right? You can survive in any new environment. Uh, while at the same time making it real and letting you become exposed to it. So uh, the core curriculum, um, we tend to focus a little more on those truths and core skills. Um, in the electives is when we'll probably take a deeper dive in what's current. So for instance, we have a course called Hot Topics in Finance, where we bring in speakers to talk about the most recent thing that is really fascinating and interesting to them. Um, so we strike that blend. Again, I think... Um, the Harley case is a very good example. Topical, new, a, a big movement, but at the end of the day, the core 
uh, notion there is how do I insulate myself against the risks of exchange rate changes when I borrow in another country? And how do I pay off that currency if I'm not hedging it? So eternal truth, compelling uh, current environment, always a struggle, but I, I do think it's important uh, to keep in mind that the ultimate objective is your learning and your experience and the core skills and understand we're building, not making you really hip and cool to the latest thing. One of the things um, that's on my mind as I'm listening to you talk through these things, and for some of our attendees out here, this may be their first major exposure to a lot of finance concepts and ideas that are out there. Um, what I'm hearing, you're talking about some more technical things, but one of the things that's true about the Darden classroom is there's lots of different kinds of people in that room. And I imagine when you teach your core finance class, you teach the international corporate finance class, lots of different backgrounds in, in those classrooms. Um, what's that like? You teach to the full room uh, where you have people who spent four years as an investment banker and people who've never had any exposure and whether it's a first year core class or an elective. Yeah, the, the, uh, it is of vital importance that we have that range of experiences in the classroom. Because one of the things that we want you to do is not only to get great at expressing your idea and uh, being true to your values, but to, to enriching you by seeing the ideas and values of others. And the more broad those experiences are, the more difference you get, the better it is for you to learn. And so for you to convince someone who shares the same values, background, and experience as you of a certain path is, is not as hard a task as taking someone who has a very different set of views, experience, and values, and bridging that gap and inspiring and influencing them. So difference becomes vital on that developing your core skills level. Now, as far as making the leap into it. And, you know, we get lots of questions about transitioning. For me, anthropo you know, poet to quant, but really um, it's, as Brett knows that the world of, of MBA education, more and more of the students who come are making larger transitions in their lives. So, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the, the plurality of students were ones who had business exposure and wanted to accelerate their career forward. What we're seeing more and more in MBA programs, particularly residential programs, is the students we come in are chefs, they're tennis players, they are from nonprofit organizations, from the military, the, the, the backgrounds are so disparate. One, we love this, like this is important, along with racial, cultural, gender, uh, experience, background, industry, you know, we want it all. We want it all right there in the classroom. Um, but one wonders then, you know, can you make that transition from being from the military or being in a nonprofit environment to being in this sort of for-profit uh, world of business education? So I'll answer that in sort of in two ways. The most important thing is yes, everyone does, and it's not that hard. My own story is, is an example of it. You get it, because the truth of the matter is you're very intelligent, motivated, and capable. And wherever you've been, you've excelled. And the basic things that make you excel wherever you are, the ones that will make you excel at Darden. It'll take a little while. I can't pretend that, you know, in two days, you'll have made that transition. But I can promise you, you'll be shocked at how quickly you make the transition. And within a quarter or two, you've really come a long ways. And by the end of the first year, you know, you don't even think in terms of I made a transition anymore. You're living and breathing it. So everyone is successful and everyone doesn't. 
Um, as far as the classroom goes, the second part of it, everyone has a different role to play. So the role of someone who has finance experience, say in investment banking, is to, when we talk about initial public offerings, they can say, well, here's how we handle the deal. Here were some of the things that we experienced. Here were some of the roadblocks. They make it real. They, they build that narrative for us. The, the role of someone who's, who doesn't even know what investment banking is, and I, there are probably many of you right here who, who have no idea what that means. Um, their role is to ask questions, to probe, to say why, to take the frameworks we've built in and, and use that to pull out intuition and question what people are doing. And so the ultimate classroom experience is this deep, rich conversation. And so the people with experience are teachers, the people without experience are learners. But the one thing you can ask any teacher and they will say the best way to learn something is to teach it. And so the very act of the experienced person explaining something is valuable. The very act of the person who's learning of asking questions and formulating questions is part of the learning experience. So I could go on on the many ways in which we structure um, Darden to make it successful for everyone making that transition. And some of that goes to some of the things I personally feel very strongly about, which is our pre-matriculation programs. But I do wanna say that everybody makes it. And one of the th beauties of that diverse classroom is there are very many roles for people to play, all of which lead to learning. Well, thank you, Mark, for the, the pedagogical uh, digression there. But I thought these really important questions and started to see some, some things along those lines in the, in the Q&A. So I do want to talk about your innovation courses. You mentioned it at the top that you teach in the innovation area as well. One of the courses, I want to make sure I get this exactly right, is Innovators, Designers, and Entrepreneurs in Action. Uh, why are you passionate about innovation? What brought you to this topic? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a solid probing of, of who I am. And, uh, you know, for, for a guy who's come from anthropology through accounting into finance and landing in innovation, so to speak, um, I think part of it is, in truth, I just love business. I mean, I, I, there are people who grab the newspaper and they go to the sports section because they're just passionate about their local team or, or and I'm, I'm one of them, you know, I'm a, I'm a culture vulture, you know, like get the Sunday times in front of me so I can go to the arts uh, section and let me hear about the latest really interesting movie. Like this stuff just excites me and gets me up in the morning. Look, I look forward to grabbing the Wall Street Journal every morning and I feel like I'm catching up on my favorite team. I say, what is Tesla doing right now? You know, wow, GE is splitting up. What an amazing change in the U.S. corporate landscape that means. You know, the Turkish lira plummeting. Erdogan maybe out of business as a, as a political leader. Like, this stuff is amazing fun. It's just flat out interesting. And in all of that environment, what businesses do and why they do it is, is extraordinary. Uh, so... For me, the heart and soul of all of this is how you change and grow and develop as a business. So it's one thing to respond to challenges, but the real question is, how do you innovate in the face of challenges? And so when I read about Peloton, subtle shifting of the type of firm they are, you know, that is innovation. When you think about GE breaking up, that's a financial change, but it is also an innovation in how they structure their business, uh, moving from a conglomerate to a non-conglomerate. So these are all innovations in one form 
or another. So the, the heart of so much of what drives the decisions that shape the world is innovation. So it was very natural over time for me to want to build my understanding and skill set around innovation. So that's, what, that's setting the stage for what we call IDEA, um, Innovators, Designers, and Entrepreneurs in Action, which was something we taught as a core course for a while at Darden and now still teach. And then my, uh, another course I taught for a while, sort of project uh, adrenaline project innovation course. I can't remember exactly the title, but the idea of all of these is that if you're gonna be an innovator, you have to start with a deep understanding of the audience you're addressing your innovation to and their experience. And so, uh, and then you need to think of, a, of innovation as a process. So for me, innovation, what we teach there is, um, Innovation is this process that starts with the user and leads to innovation. And so IDEA is, is fairly structured around a, a set of concepts we call design thinking. There are a lot of rapid prototyping, um, lean innovation, uh, design thinking. These are many flavors of the same idea. It's like, look, innovation isn't just you're taking a shower and you suddenly go, oh my God, I should break up GE, you know, or you're sitting there and you say like, I'm gonna come up with this new product. Yeah. I think that happens, but I really think that most innovation comes from a very thoughtful application of some ideas. And we see almost every large enterprise these days formalizing their innovation process around ideas such as design thinking or lean manufacturing um, or lean innovation. So um, that why I teach it, it is I'm passionate about it because I'm just passionate about business. What do I think is valuable about it is that it is this very structured process. And I think like most things, you can become very good at it by thinking about it. I think that's a wonderful thing about education, right? Like I'm an educator. I'm only an educator because I really believe I change people. I change people and I'm through those people, I change the world. That's why I'm here. And I think that all of the things you learn empower you to do that. And what's amazing in a way is that you can actually learn to be extraordinary at these types of skills. And then you can raise your game through education. Well, Mark, I want to come back to Darden before Darden be ready. Some of the academic prep resources that you've helped the school create. Um, and also talk a bit about your time as the Dean for the full-time MBA program. But I, this is office hours. This is a, a joint production between Darden Admissions and Darden Ideas to Action. And I want to talk about your research interests for, for a little while here. We've gotten some questions in the Q&A aligned with this. So it feels like the, the right time. Um, so yeah. one of your principal research interests is market microstructure. Uh, I yeah. will admit I'm an English major hosting the office hours series. I don't, I don't know much about market microstructure. What is it and how did you get interested in this particular topic? Yeah, market microstructure is really, um, it's, it's about markets. And if we think of markets, what most people think of is it's prices and it's trading and it's buying and selling things. And in finance, we sort of have two main divisions on the investment side of things. We think of asset pricing, like is the price right? Is the return worth it? Like how do I build a portfolio? This whole set of questions about investing strategies to create value and, and optimizing portfolios. Um, my research and what we call market microstructure is about the how you trade. How do you design a market to be fair? 
how do you submit an order? Do you submit a market order? Do you submit a limit order? So it's the nitty gritty of the actualization of your decisions on your portfolio. And so why, why my passion for that is that this is really a people-centered part of it. You know, I really, like I said, my passion is people and making decisions. And at the end of the day, you know, a person decides to, or representing an institution, but it's really a person decides to buy or sell. Um, and then we have to design a structure in which they can achieve it. Now I said person there, I should, as many of you are probably gonna jump up and down and say, well, these days a good 30% of trading is algorithmic. So we've outsourced the people part of that to some extent, but the same questions still arise. You know, If you wanna buy something, how do you buy it without moving the markets against you, for example? Uh, so all of these things are what we think of as market microstructure. My, my recent interests have focused on uh, mutual funds and how we organize mutual funds so that they can act in the best interests of investors who put their money into funds. So a very recent project um, is looking at, if you have a mutual fund manager, how many mutual funds should you have them manage? Like you may think that I put my money in a fund and there's one person and that's all they do. Well, first they're teams. So the average has about five people and the members of those teams may manage on average five different funds. So you can already begin to think of the really interesting questions here. Do I wanna give you other funds that are like the fund you have? Do I give you funds that are very different from the fund you have? What are the synergies between funds? What are the drains on attention? And that's, that's the heart of the research that I'm doing now on mutual funds as, as part of my market microstructure agenda. Well, you spent time as a visiting scholar at the New York Stock Exchange how does one get to be a visiting scholar at the New York Stock Exchange? And what was that experience like? Yeah, that was probably one of the best parts of my professional research career. Um, the answer is you get invited. Um, so you have to have built a reputation as a scholar in microstructure. Um, I, unfortunately, they ended the program about five or six years ago, which is, which is very sad. But, you know, things change in the organization of markets. That was right around when the NYSC had shifted from its original organization to being sort of a for-profit enterprise. Um, but you get invited and it, it's, it's a researcher's dream. You, you get to be at the heart of it. So, you know, I was on the 18th floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I had a badge that allowed me to go right down to the floor. And I had permission because I was in the research group to ask any question of anyone and they would be happy to answer. And so um, it was inspiring. You know, I would spend half a day in my office and then half a day just walking around on the floor talking to people. Um, I know this may seem uh, what is it? less interesting now, but I was on the floor the first time it crossed 10,000, the Dow crossed 10,000. But the funny thing is we all gathered on the floor the day before thinking it would end over 10,000 and it didn't. And they, had, they were standing there with all these boxes of hats that said Dow 10,000. And then um, it didn't happen. So the next day we had to go down there. And then it crossed 10,000, we passed out the hats. And then it went up and then it went down below 10,000 for about 10 years. <laughs> so such is the world. But I tell that because to be, I felt like I was a part of history, you know, to be there. And I think that people make history every day in the decisions they make. And so to be there watching traders and brokers and other people who lived and breathed the floor experience at the New York Stock Exchange, I felt I get to watch them make history every day, to learn about what they think about, 
what inspires them, why they do it. So that was, that was the moment. Um, being on the floor and being on the 18th floor doing my research where I got to really live what every researcher dreams is to have that close connection between the work you do and the people who's, who you are essentially building your research agenda upon. I loved it. Well, you mentioned this interest in fairness in markets, and it feels like there's been a lot of conversation over the past few years about fairness, particularly given the rise of algorithmic trading. And well, if anybody who's read Michael Lewis's Fast Boy, sorry, Flash Boys, uh, there's a whole discussion uh, about, gosh, does your individual trader person at home on their computer have a chance in, in these markets anymore? And one of the, I guess, heroes of that story is the IEX group uh, trying to form their own exchange with these kind of fairness equity principles baked in. You've researched that, that group. Um, what was that experience like? How did that, how did that come around? Yeah, the, the IEX experience is a, is a purple, perfectly natural outgrowth of my research agenda on how do we design markets. And the Flash Boys thing was a, a great wake-up call to where the world had gone. Now, there's a lot of little interesting dimensions. I actually wrote a case on IEX, which we used in a seminar that the Center for Asset Management ran with Dick Mayo leading it. And Mayo from Mayo Asset Management was one of the great investors um, of our time and a very powerful alum who, who really dramatically supports the school, including the creation of the Mayo Center for Asset Management. Uh, so I wrote the case for him to use in a seminar um, because he shared my interest in what the nitty gritty goes on in markets through his uh, experience as an investor of other people's money. Um, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, the, the world of trading has become more and more about speed to the extent where half the money that the New York Stock Exchange makes is from selling the rights for people to locate their computers right next to the servers where the prices are set. Why is that worth so much money? Because you can shave a nanosecond or two off your decisions. So organizations pay to have essentially algorithms sitting nanoseconds away from the market so they can trade quicker before it. Now, so this is to, to your, you framed it very well, Brett. The question is fairness. Very complex set of issues here because the existence of all those technologies that make things faster actually makes markets very, very um, tight in terms of transaction costs. So your individual trader can't play the game of nanoseconds, but your individual trader can benefit from the fact that the nanosecond traders are making the markets quite efficient. And so these are sort of deeper philosophical questions, but I think at the end of the day, it has always been the case that those who run, organize, and are part of the financial intermediation world um, exist to facilitate those of us who are investors getting a good rate of return and being able to do that at low transaction costs. In other words, not to be a burden on it. And so for all the interesting conversations about things like fairness and the flash boys and what IEX is doing, I always think of that as a lot of people trying to do right um, in various ways, not to do wrong, uh, but to really make, make uh, the markets even better and, and to earn a fair profit from doing that. So, you know, there are, there are debates. I won't even pretend that there isn't a complicated world, but I will end by pointing out that Dick and I had a long conversation about these issues. 
um, him as a, a large institutional investor. And he said, you know, I don't worry too much about the people who pick up, you know, fractions of a penny in nanoseconds. It adds up. But he says, we're paying them so much less than what we used to pay brokers a long time ago that, you know, from his point of view, the world is much better. And so his focus, and, and he and I have a lot of discussions on this, is really not the nanosecond trading day to day. But the bigger question of if something big happens in the market, who's still there? Because all the computers will just disappear. Like they're trained now after a few mistakes. <laughs> if things get crazy, they just go away. So who's left? These are deep questions in microstructure that uh, I think are, are fun and eternal. Gosh, I'm, I'm still pondering that uh, what happens if something big happens and the computers go away. I'm still trying to process that in, in my brain. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to think about. You mentioned your interest in mutual funds right now and, and the research that you're doing. Any other hot topics or things that have really captured your interest in, in the financial world right now? You know, I, I, I wrote a case uh, a few years ago on Roku's IPO. And I always find Roku was a fascinating uh, company to go public and to understand because um, at the time they were essentially a device maker, but their business plan was to shift to being a platform. And to, th to think about the difference between being a device and being a platform really gets to the heart of how we think about businesses innovate, change, grow, and reposition themselves in the face of technology and competitive pressures. Uh, so, all things related to these innovations fascinate me every day. And Roku was one that I wrote a case on at the time. I can fully see with all the breakups now and spinoffs, probably one of the cases I'll feel compelled to add to the curriculum is one about spinoffs. And we've talked about it in the past, um, but it's a really deep question. You know, we think about going public. You know, I'd, if I had unlimited amounts of time for the students' attention in the core, I'd have going public, going private, spinning off, mergers. As it is, we do focus on mergers, but I've always felt that a spinoff, which is essentially a reverse merger, um, is a fascinating question. So I'm paying a lot of attention to what's going on in the press right now about uh, deconglomeration, de sort of our, our spinoffs as opposed to mergers. Well, I mentioned we'd come back to this. Let's talk about pre-matriculation support for students as they gear up for the academic experience here at Darden. Something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, our current students will, will tell the prospective students here on the, on the call undoubtedly about things like be ready. Um, if you watch those videos, guess who the star of that video is? <laughs> Mark Lipson, um, seen it myself. Um, and uh, also uh, Darden Before Darden, which I, I will admit comes up quite often on the Experience Darden podcast as students talk about you know, getting geared up for the academic experience of their first year. Um, what You spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and really putting a lot of energy into this work. One, why were you passionate about it? And two, what was the operational idea behind both Be Ready and Darden Before Darden? Oh, good questions. Um, a very deep passion behind it. You mentioned my time as the uh, Associate Dean for the MBA program, and I consider Darden Before Darden to be the single most important contribution out of that. Also, no classes on Fridays, which the students are very excited about, but uh, meant a little less to me. Um, I will say this, that the, the student-centered learning experience works to the extent that every student is a part of the conversation. 
It's that simple. And if you can't get into that conversation, if you can't contextualize it just enough to hang on to it, then the learning is, is degraded for everybody, for everybody. And so my feeling is the most important thing to do for everybody's learning experience is to make sure that we level up those who come from backgrounds where the conversation we're having may be more difficult. Now, this could be due to language. It could be due to background. There are a lot of reasons why people may find it a little difficult to step into that environment. So with an understanding that it's, it's vital to the success of the school, which itself depends on having diverse voices in the classroom, we need to make sure that everybody is empowered to be a part of that conversation. And so Darden before Darden is, it was a very big innovation for us, not because we didn't have pre-matriculation programs beforehand, we did, but they were more training focused. They were a little more, let's, let's build certain skills so that when you go into the classroom, the skills are, are a little bit you know, pre-preloaded, uh, um, but we found that wasn't the struggle, and it wasn't that effective, because what students needed was not a few skills; they needed exposure to the Darden environment. And so, Darden before Darden, very consciously, is not a, a skill-based pre-matriculation program. It's a Darden pre-matriculation program that exposes you to Darden. So you get three cases a day, you get cases, you get the same learning environment. Now, admittedly, highly de-risked, more focused, a lot easier because it is a transition, but the key innovation there is it is Darden before Darden. And that was, that was an important step. And so roughly 40% of our students, uh, 40 to 50% will do Darden before Darden. For those of you who are listening, Absolutely. If you feel any degree of apprehension about your understanding of business because you're a chef or, or a tennis player, and I mentioned chef and tennis player a lot because they're some of my favorite students who have, I currently have, um, who are chefs and tennis players. Um, if, if there's any hesitation, be sure you, you do Darden before Darden. Um, the, the amount of lift it gives you is, is impossible to overstate. So, but that's not the end of the story, right? Because uh, there's still a lot that we can do to help people get into that conversation. So uh, Luann Lynch in the accounting faculty has an amazing MOOC that is available on accounting that um, we encourage everybody to take and is a requirement for Darden before Darden. So there is uh, stuff that happens even before Darden. We jokingly say Darden before Darden before Darden, uh, but Darden before Darden before Darden is be ready. Um, and the accounting MOOC and other things that we encourage you to do. But the one we, we wanted was the one gap is if you go out there, you can find a lot of skill-based training, but that skill-based training tends to be absent of any real context. And as I said, you know, we really believe that, that the strength of your learning comes from being able to leverage your ideas in a context. So Be Ready was, was designed to be a fully online fully you know, asynchronous way to give students a little flavor for that part of, of Darden, right? So it's again, another increment. So those of you who are getting ready, you know, absolutely familiarize yourself to the extent possible with accounting, finance, operations, you know, see movies, read books, uh, 
read the Wall Street Journal, get yourself into the world, do the accounting MOOC, do be ready. Um, it's, it's, we're probably gonna expand it, so it's a small glimpse of what it is, but it's a really important step. Now, you mentioned those videos, I have to say that was, it was funny. We, we designed Be Ready as a concept, and we came up with this idea of the game of scones uh, structure. And originally I was gonna go into the studio with a student and we were gonna do this little faculty student, little jokey thing. Um, COVID hit, um, no students, no studio. So I built a studio in my house and the person in the videos is my daughter who um, was just proficient enough of reading a piece of paper hanging behind me that we pulled it off. Um, maybe not the greatest, but I have to admit um, a joyful experience for us, um, a little less uh, produced than one might have hoped, but absolutely great fun all around. That is a great story, Mark. And I appreciate your talking through all the resources here uh, for students on the academic support front. And of course that doesn't end post-matriculation. You have, you have learning teams, you have tutors uh, from the second year class that are available. You have all your classmates in your section, you have the faculty. It's just a ton of people for you to pull upon as you navigate this experience. And oh, the support I, structure is immense. And, and, and again, you know, the, the, the culminating moment is the classroom conversation, but you're right. You've got learning teams, tutoring, Darden before Darden, be ready, the MOOCs, uh, the faculty. Uh, there is, we really believe in you, and I'm addressing all of you out there. We really believe in you, your potential, and we are building a program that will ensure your success. And that means achieving the best possible outcomes on learning and getting you ready is, is a very big part of that. All right, Mark. Well, for those uh, attendees who uh, joined us right at uh, 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, might, might have heard a little bit of a conversation about arts and culture. You mentioned that you're a culture vulture. Um, yeah. Looking forward to the Sunday Times undoubtedly uh, this Sunday, just a couple of days away. Um, what role does creativity, the arts play in, in your life? I, I, I know you personally, I, I have some suspicions as to where this answer is going, but for our <laughs> attendees, um, tell us a little bit about that. What, what I think Brett is anticipating is Brett and I played in a band together called Five and Dimers. Uh, Brett has an amazing voice. Oh my gosh, absolutely a joy to be a part of playing uh, behind him. Um, so we're both musicians. And so a lot of my creative passion is, is around music. I've played in bands all my life. I, I did until recently have a trio in town and then of course, Five and Dimers and a few other um, groups. I think the, the idea is, you know, I think the arts at their heart is about creativity, but it isn't, it isn't creativity in the sense of let's just create something that is completely out of the universe difference. Creativity, particularly in the arts, is the fusion of what's there with some new idea and inspiration. So my, you know, these days I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about jazz, which is a passion, but, I, um, but playing sort of in the Americana um, tradition. And what I love are people who can reinvent the traditional stuff in a way that is uh, just amazing. So what Robert Plant and Alison Krauss are doing in the music world, just, I think it's just outstanding. And they are plumbing tradition, but giving it a new contemporary feel and a voice that is so unique to them. So 
That to me is what businesses have to do every day. They have to start with the legacy of who they are. They have to start with where the world is and they have to come up with some compelling new idea. And this doesn't mean out of the blue bolt of lightning kind of stuff. This really means a really good change that we can reach in our understanding that inspires us. And for me, I think this comes back to my interest in innovation, but I think of innovation as sort of an artistic process, just like I think of art as an innovation process. So the distinction isn't so great. Well, I have to say, um, I wish we should have spent more time talking about Robert Plant. Uh, I got to be yeah. honest with you, as an old Zeppelin head from back in my high school days. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of him in his lower register and as a harmony singer, underrated uh, in both, both accounts. So, um, well, Mark, it's been such a joy uh, hearing your perspective on, on so many uh, different things. I wonder if you have any final words for our attendees here today, anything you'd like to share with them? Yeah, I will, I will share this. I, I've been sort of looking at the chat a little bit as we, as we talk and um, those are great questions. Oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's just wonderful. And, and I can see in the questions, um, thoughtfulness and inspiration and passion. If you bring your thoughtfulness, inspiration and passion to Darden and you're willing to ask and probe and push, um, there is no end to what you will learn. And so I think, you know, people say, what can I do to be ready? It's like, be ready. <laughs> um, besides the formal stuff we have, I really just think is take a deep breath, relax, have a good summer, show up, we'll take good care of you and bring your passion to Darden every day. I bring it, Brett brings it, the whole staff, all the faculty and all your student colleagues bring it every day, that passion. And it's a miracle and you will love it. Well, Mark, thank you so much. Um, those are great words to end on. And that was my interview with Mark Lipson, a member of the finance faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.